to the book of Zechariah, you'll find the insert in the bulletin, Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah chapter 7. It's good to be back in the book of Zechariah. Um, we've, we've been studying through it. We will continue to study through it. The largest of the minor prophets, if you're not familiar with where Zechariah is, just start in Matthew and go back two books or just two or three pages. You'll be in Zechariah. And we are entering into the second major section of the book. Just by sort of standing out at the bird's eye view of the book of Zechariah, 14 chapters long, and the book can, I think, be rightly divided into three sections. We just completed the first. The first section, chapters 1 through 6, are the eight night visions. Other than a brief introductory call, the first six verses of chapter 1, the rest of chapter 1 through 6 is the eight night visions that culminate in a symbolic act of the crowning of Joshua the high priest. And these visions are given to a remnant people who have returned from the Babylonian captivity, a meager, belittled people, to a broken, ruined temple, walls destroyed in Jerusalem. And they got there, and they quickly gave up. And God raised up prophets, Haggai first, and then Zechariah, to call the people to repentance and call them to rebuild, to continue to rebuild the temple and the city. And amazingly, the people do. And God responds to their, their repentance and faith, as he always does, with blessing. And, he, and he, the book is a, is a book of comforting words. And the visions were a combination of, of predicting judgment on Israel's enemies, those who had oppressed Israel, restoration for Israel, still woven in as a theme for Israel's need to continue to repent and be faithful. And that was the first section of the book. The second section of the book is chapters 7 and 8. One question and four answers. The people come to the prophet, they come to the priests with a question. We'll look at that in a minute. That's what we're going to dive into. And God has a four-part answer to give them. And then, flip over to chapter 9. Starting in chapter 9, we enter into the really sort of the heavy eschatological, the heavy prophetic section of the book. And it's divided into two sections as well, the two burdens of the word of the Lord. And, and that's come from the, uh, the introductory formula, chapter 9, verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord. And that first oracle continues all the way through chapter 11. Then chapter 12, 1, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. So we've got eight night visions, one question, four answers, and... The two burdens of the word of the Lord. And so in the next four weeks, this week and the next three weeks, we will be looking at one question, four answers. So that's how this sort of fits in. Let's move it a bit forward. Chapter 7 and 8 has a structure that can be broken down as well. And, and when you're reading a book of the Bible, especially the larger books, it's helpful to look for structural markers for divisions. We want to make sure that the divisions we're finding aren't of our own devising, but are actually there. And, and frequently, the author will give us markers, will give us indicators of how to divide this up. How do we know God's answer is in four parts? We'll look at the introductory formula in chapter 7, verse 4. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. So in the first three verses, we hear about their question, and we will get to that. And then the first response, verse 4, then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Verse 8, 
and the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. That's, that's a marker. Then chapter 8, verse 1, the word of the Lord of hosts came. And verse 18 of chapter 8, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. You see that formula? So it's a four-part answer. And then we know that chapter 9 is starting a new section for a number of reasons, not least of which we have a new introductory formula, the burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach. So we're looking at a self-contained unit. There's also one other feature in here that um, indicates to us that this is a unit. One of the literary devices that authors sometimes use is called ellipsis. It's a form of bookends. You start with something and you close with something. To some degrees, the modern um, method of writing an essay does that. You start off with your thesis paragraph. Let me tell you what I'm going to tell you. And then you tell it. And then you close with sort of recapping that thesis. Let me tell you what I told you. Look how chapter 7 starts. With foreign men coming or men from foreign, born in, in Babylon. They have, they have pagan names. They're Israelis. Um, verse 2. Now the people of Bethel sent Sherezer and Rechem Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord. These, these are Mesopotamian names. These are not Israeli names. These men were most likely born in captivity, born in Babylon. So foreign men, men from foreign parts, coming to entreat the favor of the Lord. Go look at how chapter 8 ends. Start in verse 20. Thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us go up at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going, and many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. The, the section starts with people with names from foreign parts coming to seek and entreat the favor of the Lord, the section ends with a prophecy that in the future the same thing would happen. We've got a bookend. So we know we're dealing with a unit. We know we're dealing with a subset of the book of Zechariah, chapter 7 and 8. This isn't something we've made up. There's, there's textual markers. And so we're going to take this week their question, look at that, and then we're going to look at the Lord's first response. Now, even though the, the text breaks up the word of the Lord came, the word of the Lord came, we don't know over what time period this response was given. I'm going to assume it was given generally all at once. So even though it's going to take us four weeks to look at the four answers God has, I believe they were given and maybe a little bit of time to chew on it and then some more. There's no indication that much time is elapsing as these, as these answers are being given. But we're going to take them one at a time. The first two are negative. The first two involve a, a slight amount of rebuke, correction. And the second two answers are incredibly gracious and incredibly encouraging and incredibly, incredibly wonderful of what God is promising to do as they ask him about fasting. Which brings us to the box in the notes. What's concerned here, and let's just read the first three verses here. Um, in the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislei. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Ragemelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Now, if you are a student of the Old Testament, you may be a little perplexed here. There is no, in the, in the, there's, there's, a, there's a full um, feast and celebratory calendar for Israel, but there's only one assigned fast, and that is the Day of Atonement. 
which the people are to afflict themselves. Out of all the, the um, ordinances of worship that God has prescribed to Israel, there's only one fast. It's the Day of Atonement. And so here is the, what's going on in the fifth month. Well, it gets broadened out because as God responds to them, he adds another month in. Apparently, they weren't just fasting in the fifth month. Fifth month. Um, look at verse 5. Say to the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth, fifth month and in the seventh, these seven years, so it's the fifth month and the seventh month, but then go down to chapter 8. It gets broadened down even further. Verse 18. The word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be done in the house of Judah. So so back to chapter 7. What these fasts are is they were created in Babylon. They weren't prescribed by God. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, God's people, I think, have a certain amount of freedom to, to celebrate and to remember things. Nowhere in Scripture are we commanded to observe Christmas and Easter, and yet I think those are great observances. But the key here is this is something they came up with. This is their own innovation. This was not something prescribed. Now, there is indication that Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, was observing one of these fasts. So they're not necessarily bad, but it's something they came up with. And the, the fasting was done to mourn and to commemorate significant events in Israel's destruction and undoing, specifically around the captivity of Babylon. And I've laid them out here, the four events corresponding to the four fasts. First, Jerusalem is besieged in the 10th month. That's the fast of the 10th month. And you can look up those references in Second Kings and Jeremiah, get the dates This is the first siege of Jerusalem, beginning of the end. Then Jerusalem's walls are breached, and the noblemen try to escape, and they're caught by Nebuchadnezzar, the fast of the fourth month. Jerusalem destroyed, and that's in the fifth month. And then the final capstone, Nebuchadnezzar, because remember, Nebuchadnezzar came in multiple waves. Nebuchadnezzar sets up his own figurehead leader, and the Israelites assassinate him. And Nebuchadnezzar comes back and just puts the smack down like he never did before. And so the assassination of Gedaliah, um, Nebuchadnezzar's leader, and those four events are what the fasts were commemorating. They're in Babylon. They're ripped away from the land. There is no temple. There's no temple worship. There is no land. All these promises and all this, I'm going to bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey. They're, they're, they're not being fulfilled while they're in Babylon. And so the Israelites mourning the destruction and the loss of these things in God's favor came up with these fasts for affliction. And we're going to look at whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. In fact, what we're going to look at this morning is the notion of true repentance. What is true repentance? What is true faith? What is true religion? So we're going to look at it in in three points, their question, the question from Bethel, the answer from the Lord, and the application for us. The question from Bethel, the answer from the Lord, the application for us. Now, this section begins with another inscription of date, like another time stamp. And I've told you that these time stamps aren't for nothing. It's important. The author wants us to know. And what's happened here is we've now jumped two years later than last time we were in Zechariah. This is two years after the eight night visions. And what we know is, we know that in another two years, the temple, the new temple, will be finished in its completion. And so what we've got is, we've made some progress. The people were, were, were discouraged. The people were half-hearted. The people were um, 
looking at these ruins. Now, construction's been underway for two years. The beginning of God's favor is beginning to return. Things are starting to change a little bit. Things, their spirits are starting to be up. The, the completion is in sight. And these men from Bethel send a delegation to ask in verse um, two, 3, the chief priests of the house of the Lord and the prophets, their question. Now, Bethel, this is, this is good. This is encouraging. Because Bethel has a bit of a sordid past when it comes to false religion. Um, if you remember, Solomon's son, who ripped the nation in two, or at least set up the impetus for that, um, by being heavy-handed and harsh with the people, the, the, the leader of the north, Jeroboam, um, sets up an alternate site of worship with two golden calves. And one of the golden calves is placed at Bethel. So Bethel, historically was a place of false worship, a false center of worship for the Lord. And here, they're sending men to the true source of worship, the true geographic center, Jerusalem. This is, this is good. This is encouraging. They've at least figured that much out. They recognize we're, we're not, we're not the, the religious center of the nation. Jerusalem is. They send the delegation to the temple. Now, it appears as though they're looking for a simple yes or no answer. Notice the, the ordering of who they're t- asking. They're really sending it to the priests of the house of the Lord and the prophets. The priests would instruct the people in the law. The prophets at that time are Haggai and Zechariah. And it appears as though they were simply looking for a yes or no answer. And, and, and what they want to ask is this. Can we finally stop this wearisome fast? Why do, I, why do I put it that way? Well, I think that the indicators are in the text. Saying to the priests of the house of the Lord and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? And, and the phrasing in the Hebrew is quite clear. This is, this is viewed as a burden. This is something that is weighty. This is something they want to stop. They want the answer to be, yes, you fasted enough. Stop. You get the impression they're hoping for a simple answer. They don't get a simple answer. Because rather than the priests answering them, the Zechariah the prophet's going to answer them, and God's going to give them an answer, and I'm not done with you yet, there's more. And then the word of the Lord comes, and there's more answer, and then there's more answer, and then there's more answer. And chapters 7 and 8, the rest of 7 and 8, take up the answer to this question. They come, they send a delegation, it's good. They send to the right place, to the right people. If you think about it, the priests and the prophets are the only source of divine revelation in Israel. The priests ministering the law, the written revelation, and the prophets, the one to whom God might give oral um, revelation. And what they get is not an answer from the book, but an answer from the prophet, who will, as we'll see next week, point them to the book. So that's what they ask. But what do they really want? And this is key. What they want is the Lord's favor and blessing. That becomes clear from God's answer to them, but it's even hinted at in here. They came to entreat the favor of the Lord. What are they after? The Lord's favor. Which is odd. I want God's favor, but what I want to know is, can I stop fasting? And it seems as though, can we stop fasting and still have your favor? That, that seems to be the gist of the question. Have we fasted enough, or are you going to be unhappy if we stop? Because what we really want is your favor. Can, can we stop this wearisome fast? They want the Lord's favor. They want the Lord's blessing. So that's their question. Simple question, pretty straightforward. Asked in pretty straightforward language. God is going to have a lot to say to them. And it's not all bad. 
But it starts off with rebuke. This week, we're going to look at rebuke. Next week, we're going to look at some more rebuke. And then the two following weeks, we're going to look at promises and blessing and redemption and all sorts of good things. So that's their question. The answer then from the Lord. The answer from the Lord. And God answers their question with some questions of his own. Um, Let's just read it. Verses 4 through 7. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? You see, God answers their question initially with three questions of his own. Um, this is sometimes a very effective way of teaching. Jesus would frequently answer questions with questions. And God here, in a, it's not devastating, but a pretty clear rebuke, um, addresses some misconceptions of these people. The first question, have you ever really fasted and mourned for me? Again, the Hebrew is emphatic. You could, you could translate this. Was it for me, even me, that you fasted? Was it for me, even me, that you ate and drank? And what God's asking the question here is, okay, granted, you've been fasting for 70 years. In your hearts and in your minds, what has been the focus of your fasts? Why were you fasting? Was it for me? You might ask yourself, well, why else would they be fasting? Well, there's plenty to be sorry about. You could be fasting because there's no more temple. You could be sorry about that. You could be sorry that you're living in nasty, dirty Babylon. Surrounded by people who don't speak your language, being virtual slaves and mocked. You could be sad because there's no Davidic king and there's no empire. There's all sorts of things you can be sad about other than I offended God. So they're sad. They're, no, no question. They're, they're fasting. They're afflicting themselves. God's question to them and the implied answer is, at best, not really. <laughs> the implied answer at best is, not really, Lord. Were, were, were you fasting for me? Were you you fasting for me? See, they're coming thinking that they've got some sort of spiritual cred, currency, okay? Here's God. We're bad. We've been disciplined, but we've been mourning. And once we mourn enough, we can stop mourning, and then God will bless us. Once we pay off the debt, then we can stop, and we can receive God's favor. And it looks like the temple's being reconstructed. And all the things that we were mourning, have the, the, the newness is being coming in. And so could we now stop mourning the old temple and start getting excited about this new temple? There's nothing fundamentally wrong with that question, but the Lord is exposing the motives of their heart. And what he's saying is, you, 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 this was never about me. This was never about me. All of your ritual observance, all of your fasting, And even your feasting and your eating, positively or negatively, whether you were in repentance or whether you were celebrating, whether you were conducting yourself throughout the day, was it for me that you were doing these things? And clearly the implied answer is no. No, they weren't. And and, and this doesn't mean these people are totally apostate. Remember, God works with us bit by bit. He'll show us something that we need to work on, and we'll work on it, and he'll encourage us, and then he'll show you something new you need to work on, and that's the Christian life. We, We never arrive... Um, this side of the resurrection. We never arrive this side of the return of Christ. And so the people have responded 
to Zechariah's opening salvo, a call to repentance. And they do. They return to the Lord. And that's good. And God gives them some encouragement. And then the people come and ask this question. And God's going to give them encouragement. Don't misunderstand. But first, he's got to correct their wrong understandings of how things work. Have you ever really fasted for me? Have you ever really eaten and drank for me? And the last question he asks in verse 7 is, have you ever listened to the prophets I sent you? Remember, I said they invented, they came up with these four fasts on their own. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. Daniel appeared to be keeping at least one of these in Daniel 9. Um, But the, the real question is, did you ever really do what I wanted you to do in the first place? Because he says to them, were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, with her cities around her, and the south and the lowland were inhabited? Which is to say, back when things were going wrong, God sent you some prophets to warn you. And he clearly told you through Jeremiah, through Isaiah, through Ezekiel, what he wanted of you, what you could do to avert this, this discipline. And you didn't do it. Have you yet done it? Have you yet listened to what I said? It's really nice that you came up with these fasts. That's sweet and all. Did you do the thing I asked you to do in the first place? And again, the implied answer at best is not fully. Not fully. So that's, that's God's answer. That's got to be pretty discouraging. And notice he doesn't, he, the answer goes beyond the people who ask the question. Just to Bethel, some men from Bethel ask the question. The answer in verse Five, say to all the people of the land and all the priests. In other words, Bethel, the question they're asking clearly is the question the nation's asking. And, and the misunderstandings of the men of Bethel are clearly the misunderstandings of the nation. So what, what do we make of this? Um, I, three things. The application for us. I think there's three things we can get from this, at least. Three things. First, true repentance is directed towards the Lord and not just the consequences of our sin. True repentance is directed towards the Lord, and not just the consequences of our sin. That's what he calls them out on. Why were you sorry? Are you sorry you got disciplined? Or are you sorry for your sin? Are you sorry about the the break in our relationship? Are you sorry about the offense that you've caused to the living God? Or are you sorry about what he has done in response? You know, if, if I'd recommend going back to the series on uh, sin and sanctification. Pastor Daniel did a, did a wonderful message on 2 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11. And we studied the, the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Paul says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas the grief of the world produces death. Just because you're sorry doesn't mean anything. Think of Judas, think of Peter. Two men betrayed the Lord in the same night. Both men very, very sorry. One's sorrow leads to death. One's sorrow leads to life and restoration. And Paul goes on to describe the characteristic fruits of godly sorrow. He says, what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, at every point, you proved yourself innocent. You know, when, when we feel that we've been disciplined by the Lord, when we are suffering the consequences of our own sin and poor choices, what are we really sorry about? It's okay to be sorry about the discipline. The danger is that's all we're sorry for. The danger is that that's all we care about. 
And God calls on us to, to direct our repentance towards him. You know, Samuel makes this point really clearly in, in 1 Samuel 15. Remember Saul? Saul is told to go kill Agag and all the Amalekites, and he's not to spare any of the people. He's not to spare any of the animals. And what does he do? He spares the king as a trophy. He spares the best of the animals. And he makes a statue for himself. And Samuel comes, and Samuel said to Saul, and, and he rebukes Saul, in verse 24, chapter 15, Saul says, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandments of the Lord and your word, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Now, that sounds good. You're like, Saul, this is looking good. That sounds good, Saul. You've confessed your sins. You've owned up to it. Then Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. If you rejected the word of the Lord. So here comes the consequence, Saul. Here comes the consequence of what you've done. I will not return with you for you've rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king. Guess what, Saul? You don't get to be king anymore because of what you did. Now, forgiveness, restoration, that's not off the table. Saul, Samuel has not said you can't be forgiven. What he does get to say is the consequence of what you've done, you don't get to be king anymore. And Samuel turned to go away. And Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore and Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Sounds good again. Yet honor me now before the elders and the people of Israel. What's Saul really concerned about? Saving face. I've sinned. Everyone knows the prophet just came and had a talk with Saul, they saw the prophet walk away. No, no, return me. Honor me in the sight of the people. And is Saul going to give up the kingship? No, he's not. For 40 years, he's going to continue to pretend to be king, even though God has anointed his own king. It's clear Saul was really just concerned about the consequences of his sin, not his sin itself. A, a terrifying example, because it sounds so good, and yet when push comes to shove, Saul's concerned about the kingdom. Saul's concerned about how he looks in front of other people. He never bricks up again. I want forgiveness. I want restoration. No, I want honor in the sight of the people, and I want this crown, and he'll try to kill David for it. Secondly, not only is true repentance directed towards the Lord, true religious observance is the outflow of a faithful and obedient heart or it is worthless. True religious observance is the outflow of a faithful and obedient heart, or it is worthless. And we live in a day that doesn't like the word religion. How many times have you heard it's a, it's a relationship, not a religion? The only problem with that catchy phrase is that James instructs us about what true and undefiled religion is. And, and whatever Christianity is, it is a relationship. It is also a religion. Sometimes I get... I get Bugged when people say it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And I want to say, well, does your relationship involve rites and rituals like baptism and eating meals once a month? Yes. And um, do, do you guys gather together regularly? Are there set times and places and buildings? Yes. And, uh, yeah, okay, it's, it's a religion. It's not only a religion, it is a relationship. It's not the either or, but we, we are part of a religion. We are going to, in just a few minutes, observe a symbolic rite or ritual, um, the Lord's Supper. 
And that's, that's not a bad thing. Religion isn't a bad thing if it's built upon the foundation of a faithful and obedient heart. God's given us things to do. He's given us rites to perform. He's given us ceremonies to observe. That's not inherently bad. They just have to come out of the right heart. True religious observance is the outflow of a faithful and obedient heart, or it is worthless. And so the phrase, it's a relationship, not a religion, is, is good insofar as it understands that what really matters, what holds the whole thing up, the thing that gives it its value and worth, is your heart towards God. And there is no amount of ritual observance that can please God. There is no amount of fasting that, that earns you money in your bank account that you can get goodies from God with if your heart isn't right. And there's just a slew of texts we can read. We know this, but let me just read some of these. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design and your good pleasure build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. And what David is saying is this. He is not saying when he says you don't desire burnt offerings, Moses got it wrong in Leviticus. And he could have saved us all a bunch of time and trouble if he just would have understood you don't care about offerings. What he's saying is, compared to what you really want, which is my heart, a broken and contrite heart, you don't care at all about these bulls and these lambs and rams that are being offered. In the scales, this is the heavy one. What God's after, David is saying, is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And David then doesn't say, and as long as I have a broken spirit and contrite heart, it doesn't matter whether I observe the rituals. No, because he goes on to say, no, I will. I will offer burnt offerings. But that's not really what you're after. What you're after is my heart, a faithful and obedient heart. That's what God is after with them. They misunderstood the point of fasting. The point of fasting is not, God, I'll beat myself up enough that you'll feel bad for me. Fasting and mourning is not about accruing into your spiritual bank account, some sort of currency that you can then go and turn into the Iwana store you know, and buy goodies from God. Rather, fasting and mourning is a way of humbling yourself. If you sense that you're, you aren't taking your sin seriously enough, if you, take, if you sense that in your heart you could use to be humbled, I would encourage you, fast and pray. For your own sake, so that your heart would change, so that your inward being would be humbled, so that you could be right with God. You're, you're doing it seeking a relationship with God, not to impress him. I mean, here, God, I'm going to hit myself in the hand with a hammer until you're impressed. God is not impressed by that. But the people thought somehow they were they're impressing him. Listen to Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. I want a broken heart, not a broken garment, God's saying. People at times, to demonstrate their grief and their undoing and their repentance, would, would tear their garments. God said, I want you to rend your hearts. That's what I'm after. Amos 5, 21 to 25, in, in strikingly strong language. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me all the noise of your songs. 
To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an overflowing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, a house of Israel? How, how did you get the idea that that was the big important thing? The big and important thing is loving me, loving your neighbor, loving righteousness. That, that's the big important thing. And again, it's not that the sacrificial system and singing and all of that's unimportant, but it only has value if it's built upon a foundation of a right heart. All of the songs we sing here, only have any meaning and value towards God if your heart is right. We all know the danger of singing what we don't mean. We're going to be observing the Lord's table here shortly. and I just want to read a few verses because Paul warns us of this very thing, of hollow, empty religious observance. It's a dangerous thing. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, and I don't have the reference here. Sorry, I've got to turn my Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, not 2 Corinthians. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There we go. Chapter 11, sorry. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. What does that mean? What does it mean to drink it in an unworthy way? Well, the, the, the next exhortation I think helps shed light on it. Let a person examine himself and then eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This, this table that we're going to celebrate in just a few minutes should be a joyous time of affirming the Lord's death until he comes. Paul says we do that. that what do we do when we partake of this table? We, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What, what else are we proclaiming? Well, we proclaim by eating and drinking that we are those who eat and drink of Christ. Remember Jesus saying that you must eat his flesh and drink his blood, and in the context of John 6, it means coming to him and believing in him. And, and so to everyone in this room, as they see you eat and drink, what you're saying is, I'm one who feeds off Jesus Christ. Moreover, a chapter earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, additionally, as we do this corporately, we say something about our fellowship, about our church. He writes, the cup of blessing that we bless, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, is it not a fellowship in the blood of Christ or of the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a fellowship or participation of the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. One of the additional things we, we do when we take communion is we declare our oneness. We're all many individuals, but just as this bread came from one loaf and just as this, this grape juice came from one jar... So we are one body. We declare all these things when we take communion. The real issue is, do we believe them? Do we live them? Does it reflect the reality of our hearts? It's one of the reasons why we're going to take some time today to, to, to prepare our hearts for taking this worthy. Because Paul gives us some stern warnings. He says, to drink it in an unworthy way is to eat and drink judgment on yourself. Verse 30, this is why many are weak and some have died. God was killing people. The Corinthian church, because they were flippantly, lightly, hypocritically, and shallowly taking the Lord's table. But if we judge ourselves, we will not be judged. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. It matters how we take these rituals and these observances. 
And there's two errors. The one error is ritual is completely unimportant. It's only about relationship. Well, no, Jesus commands us to do things like this. He commands us to do baptism. He commands us to, to, to eat this meal. The other danger is to think it's all about the observance. And as long as we're doing the, the, the spiritual ritual, we're good. We come to church. We check the box. We, we're good little Christians because we do what we're supposed to do. And our hearts don't love the Lord. They're not right. Matt, Matt Chandler writes this in his book about the gospel. Heaven is not a place for those who are afraid of hell. It's a place for those who love God. You can scare people into coming to church. You can scare people into trying to be good. You can scare people into giving money. You can even scare them into walking down an aisle and praying a prayer. But you cannot scare people into loving God. You just can't do it. God's after our hearts. He's after our hearts. And there's a danger with hypocrisy. There's a danger of acting like you got it all together. I, I talk to more people than I can count. This is a common struggle in this body. So if you struggle with this, you're in good company. The danger is this. We're all aware of our brokenness. We're aware of our sin. But because we live in a culture that covers it up, we feel like we've got to put on a happy, smiley face, put on, put on a good mask and show up to church. And we see everyone else around here. They look like they've got it together. I must be the only person who's broken. I've got to be the only person struggling. I've got to be the only person who's a mess. And then we start to feel like they're not like me. Well, the more people pretend, the more people put on the, the righteous face and go through the motions, the more we perpetuate that type of hypocrisy. And the harder it is for the people who are trying to be real to feel like they're actually a part of the body. Let me, let me say that again. There are some people hopefully more and more of us, who are trying to be honest, trying to be real about where we're at. But when we look around and we see a bunch of people who are, who are hell-bent on appearing like they've got it all together, we're, they're going to get the impression that church is for the people who've got it together. And since I'm a mess, maybe I don't belong here. This, this is a common struggle for people, I'm telling you. And it gets perpetuated by, by going through the motions, by, by coldly and deadly being a hypocrite. Finally, point C. True faith loves and seeks the Lord himself and not just his gifts. True faith loves and seeks the Lord himself and not just his gifts. James warns us that we, we ask and we have not because we ask wrongly to spend it on our desires. And there's a way to come to God with prayer that honors him and there's a way that comes to God that treats them like a cosmic genie or vending machine. James 4, you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? James equates coming to God and asking for things for yourself as being an adulterous wife. And the imagery is this. The wife comes to her husband, dear, I need $500. What do you need $500 for, dear? I met a guy on Facebook, and I want to fly off and see him. So can I have $500, please? I know you love me. When we come to God as worshipers of things, and we say, God, God, please, please, give me the things. Give me the things. We're guilty of spiritual idolatry. We're guilty of spiritual unfaithfulness. We're like that wife, James says, who's unfaithful, and we have the audacity to come to our, our betrothed, to come to our Lord, and ask him for the very things that we have replaced him with. When we, when we are concerned more about the gifts than the giver. By contrast, listen to Psalm 73. I'm going to call the worship team up for our next song as we get ready here. 
Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Or Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. Whatever I had as gain, I count as loss. For the sake of Christ, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish. The real question is, are we after God himself or his gifts? Do we really want to know? Do we really want to be in relationship with the living God who is a consuming fire, who is righteous and holy and love and gracious? Or do we want a safe religion? I'm going to close with this quote from D.A. Carson, which is very, I found, convicting. And this is a quote from his book, Basics for Believers, an exposition of Philippians, and and it said, sort of tongue-in-cheek, I would like to buy $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much, just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I, want, I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies and cherish self-denial and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I myself don't want to love those very different from me, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure, my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I, I, I would like about three dollars worth of gospel, please. God wants our hearts. God is jealous. God wants all of us. And as we sing this next song, and as we prepare ourselves, are we, by what we proclaim about our feeding on Christ, about his coming, about our unity, are we going through the motions or are we sincere? So let's sing, I ask the Lord, and prepare our hearts for the table of the Lord.